Welcome to the Hero's Journey Economy Podcast, and today we've got Paul Morgan. He's a Strategic and Sales Enablement Vice President at Nielsen. He's one of these people that really knows the consumer packaged goods industry and the retail industry very well. He's out on LinkedIn making some great observations, and I thought he'd be a great guest for us today. So let's get started. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. I've done this for a long time. You're out there on LinkedIn making a ton of observations of the industry. You're really a subject matter expert out there for consumer packaged goods and the consumer behavior. What kind of things are you seeing out there, either in with consumer packaged goods companies as, as they sell to consumers, or you also really track the retail environment, the Amazons, the Whole Foods, the, the Targets. Paul, what are you seeing out there as far as maybe trends in the marketplace? There's so much happening right now. It's, it's quite incredible. It's actually the most change compressed into one kind of time slice that I've seen in, in ever, actually. The reason is, is because technology has evolved. I'll give you an analogy to kind of draw where this is going. Take, for example, in 2005, I moved from the UK to Chicago. The UK had launched, oh, in the UK, you could buy the Motorola Razor flip phone. That wasn't yet quite available in the US. So when I was, I was walking through the merchandise mart in Chicago and I was talking to someone on the phone and I heard somebody say to somebody else, that guy's got a razor, that's really cool. Now, if I was to walk through a merchandise mart today, I can guarantee you I would not be hearing that. In fact, probably the opposite. And the reason is, is that if you think about today's mobile devices, they're far more sophisticated, far more, far more experiences available from them, that our level of expectation has risen. And that can be true for many things. If you think about uh, the way that fridges, for example, can help you with um, replenishment. If you think about the way that cars can help you with driving, our level of expectation has risen. And that is very true for the consumer packaged goods industry. I see that shoppers and consumers are willing to invest time and effort in researching products, knowing what goes into them and sharing that information with others. And so that sharing of information, that, that wealth of knowledge and that education translates to consumers are far more savvy, far more informed, and far more, far more ready to be critical of the products on the shelf if they don't meet their needs states. Well, are there certain categories that are just certain consumer demographics that seem to be leading the charge? Speaking just recently, actually, there's, there's something that's kind of interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch how this goes. The alternative meat category is seeing a real kind of explosion right now. There's this whole concept called flexitarian, which is a meat eater who's prepared to eat these protein-based alternative meat solutions. Why is that? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm speaking all the time as a independent of Neil, so I'm going to give my opinion and my opinion alone. But sure. the reason is, is because people are caring about what goes into their body. That There's some folks, I'm sure, who are, have concerns about meat. There's been some news or some education. How true it is or not, I can't speak, but certainly that I've seen those notes about excessive eating of meat can cause health issues. And so people are using the education to make informed or semi-informed decisions around what purchase choices they're making. So even with snacking, right, for example, snacking continues to be a, a category that still is a, a growth mechanism, but that snacking is changing towards healthier snacking. 
consumers and shoppers really want to continue that trend of using snacks to fulfill certain need states, but they want to make sure that the ingredients going into those snacks are good for their body. And that's even more true for the younger generations. They're definitely responding to making sure that those clean labels, those, those in their messaging around what products they solve or serve, clearly authentic and delivering the right solution, the right kind of ingredients. Just thinking about some of the, the claims that they might make, I've seen in the past that have created growth, things like fair trade, things like nothing artificial, clean labels, that's, again, no artificial requirements, uh, plus things like none of the undesirable ingredients, as it were. Simple and clean, those sorts of things. Those really resonate because consumers have felt, and, and we've, we've talked about how in the past, we've seen how smaller brands are winning today more than larger brands. Growth has come from the smaller brands. There's a number of reasons why that occurs, but they've caused some of the catalysts of change in this industry because they're able to bring to market very fast products which meet those new need states or those adapted need states of consumers and shoppers. You know, I take a look at uh, Halo Top ice cream, which caters to maybe a ketogenic diet. It lower sugar, more protein, yep. uh, less carbohydrates. And they really came out of nowhere. And a very small company. Traditionally, there have been very high barriers to entry for this consumer products goods getting into distribution channels. It's amazing that how fast that's grown. I think it's really shaken up the ice cream industry to kind of say, okay, Halo Top has done is said, we're going to make a healthier ice cream and it's going to taste good. And they walk that balance, I think, of lower, lowering the sugar, but it's not no sugar. It's still called ice cream. Right. Uh, but it balanced that to kind of people still, if they're on a ketogenic diet or they're really watching their carbs, still like, you know, it doesn't mean they can't eat ice cream at all. And they really exploited that, kind of taking a look at a hole in the market where the big guys just weren't seeing it. It's really interesting to see that innovation. And you're right. The, well, in fact, they put no national advertising campaign together. They just get it to social media, got people to demand it at the store and created this huge pull down to the retail. Artificial meat's really interesting too, because there's a whole aspect there of one, it's healthier. And two, I think from what I've been reading, there's the younger generations just comes out of that food ink type book, eating meat as a global citizen, it's a, it's a pretty inefficient thing to do. We grow all this food, hay or grass or grain. And instead of eating it, we give it to another animal to eat. And then we, and then we eat that animal. So there's all this water, soil, uh, methane, huge carbon footprint to raising those products that are totally eliminated. And I think that's also a concern. In addition to maybe a healthier product, it just doesn't have the, the carbon footprint of maybe a traditional farm. Yeah, I still think there's going to be some challenges ahead um, because we're now talking about potential shifts to alternate proteins, right? That supply chain doesn't exist, potential target audience or consumer state. So I think there's going to be some challenges around making sure we can meet the demands because I, I think it's going to be a bit like, I liken it to the yogurt situation a couple of years ago where yogurt, they realized that yogurt was immensely expandable and we had these brands like Shibani coming out and really kind of killing it. And then suddenly we saw saturation and uh, a ton of issues around you know, who's going to win the shelf kind of thing and lots of pricing stuff going on. So I think it's going to be one of those situations where, and I made this point on my LinkedIn, is brands need, need to be holding true to their North Star, which is their brand message and being true to that, that value. 
being authentic with their customers, being authentic with their shoppers, helping people understand the value they bring to the shelf and the products they serve, how they are beneficial to the consumer and meeting the different need states. So I always talk about how it's, we have lots of opportunities to connect with our shoppers. It's really important that you think about that and you think about all the opportunities you have to connect with folks. Um, you talked about, earlier we were talking about Uber and what have you and, and rideshare services. Some companies, some CPG companies are now selling their products in rideshare services. Huh. I saw one in, in uh, an Uber car recently. It's a little box um, and it's a third party, but they're selling brands in those cars. So they're satisfying a snacking need state. Now, just take that as an example, right? It's a very simple example, but now I'm putting my product in another situation where my potential shopper is being, or is located, that shopper or that potential shopper now transacts and buys my snacking product. It's a single bar. It's what, maybe a buck, I'm not sure. Now I've created a connection. And maybe that connection, along with other connections I make, can create an influence to the next time that shopper goes to fulfill a, maybe a, a weekly shop or whatever. They can now take that influence and, and it can be sticky and they can be reminded of that situation. Let's say, for example, we're in the same car. We also have stain sticks uh, for, for laundry. You're taking an Uber to work and you drop coffee on your shirt. You've now got a stain stick in the car you can use and dab on there and, and it gets rid of the stain and you feel fantastic. I've, I've saved it. You remember that. And so the next time you go to the store, that subconsciously may have an influence on your purchase decision. It's a great place for someone to actually, from a branding standpoint, get trial. It's a whole channel that maybe wasn't available before. I can't make this, this point strong enough, and I, I say it to anyone who listens. Your shopper is already an omni-shopper. So although you may be thinking about how to become an omni-organization, and you may have a, a team that deals separately with e-commerce, or you may have an integrated team, your shopper's already there. They're already making purchase decisions using all available tools, including digital. So you need to transform as quickly as possible in the right ways. And think about how those touch points can affect you. I'll give you another example. Since we're talking about transformational stuff and how technology could potentially impact a consumer in a positive way. Right now in Kroger, they have these smart tags. These smart tags are just basically, rather than a physical piece of card or whatever it is to change the pricing or the promotion, they're literally little LCD screens with the pricing displayed on them so they can be changed remotely. Now, that sounds good. I mean, it's a, an operational task that no one likes to do, but today, without my digital form, so that's good. Down the line, with the right permissive approach towards maybe IoT or something, the Internet of Things, let's imagine now you're going down the aisle and you've connected with the store and the store knows who you are, and you're going down and you look to purchase an item and it says, based off the dietary needs that you've told us you have, this item is or is not suitable. So let's say, for example, you're you know, gluten, gluten intolerant. Maybe you're now informed at the shelf about what's going on. Now think about where that could go. Okay, you can't have this product, but how about this instead? Most people buy this, or this is on deal right now. So you're starting to interact with that shopper and create experiences around advisory. They're still in charge, but you're creating these experiences, these connection points, which help the shopper feel part of the store. Yeah. Just like today, we see the perimeter of the store being given up to flower shops, coffee shops, bars, etc. That's an experience. 
that's a non-digital experience largely. It's just extending it further into the store. And so when I talk about the Omnishopper, they're using the store as much as they are digital to make these purchase decisions. It really is blended. Yeah, it really is. The important thing is trust. Yeah. There has to be implicit trust on the consumer and shopper of the organization or organizations they're interacting with. There was a study last year by the, it's called the Endelman Trust Barometer. And it said about 63% of the general population often find it hard to distinguish between truths and untruths. And about 50% of them are also distrustful of US businesses. That's a historical legacy we've left because of what's happened in the past, not just for CPG brands, I'm talking just generally now. Yeah. But I think that's, that states the case that, you know, as much as we want to, as businesses, we want to interact with our current shoppers, our potential shoppers, we have to, there has to be a quid pro quo. We, we need to demonstrate trust, trust in our products, trust in the way we interact, trust in everything we do as the experience so that our shoppers truly trust giving up this information. That's going to be an interesting piece of this puzzle is that kind of information brokerage between individual or individuals and, um, and organizations. So if you're a family, shopping for a family, for example, you want to probably collate the requirements of your family. If like, you know, example, one person of the family had a, a health requirement, a, 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 an allergy, how does that shopper communicate that? And there's, there's some really interesting data information sharing brokerage that needs to happen. There's going to be lots of opportunity in that space as well. Yeah, because one of the things about the whole hero's journey economy and, and transformation, as people start to take, let's say it's a physical goal that they have and they want to go on a journey. Right now, there's maybe not that vehicle to be able to communicate that to a brand or a, a retailer. But that becomes very interesting because in the hero's journey, whether your movies and, and video games do a very good job of tapping into the hero's journey what Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey, where people you know, take up a challenge and they have some setbacks. But a key element of that whole journey, as you start to go through and you're, you go through some kind of very challenging thing or, and you come out at the other end different. So whether it's Luke Skywalker who takes up the challenge, there are, in all these stories, there are either mentors or sidekicks that assist people through this. And, you know, whether it's Han Solo or Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, people go through these journeys that sometimes are very challenging, very personal, whether it's trying to lose weight, whatever it might be, they're type two diabetic and they want to, they, they really want to pro their weight or the ability for a brand to tap into that journey and be a trusted advisor. If that happens, that brand has a much different relationship with that person, whether it's the retailer or the manufacturer of the product. To your point, it's like the stain removal uh, to the power of 10, right? It's, it's something that people look at and if they are transformed and a brand helps them do that, that relationship is pretty solid moving forward. Totally. And it might not be just that brand. Consumers don't, or I, I personally believe consumers, if they're presented with a solution that avoids friction of them having to create the solution themselves, are more willing to listen to that option. We have seen where, for example, certain manufacturers who have two separate products that are relatable when bundled together as a promoted group sell more together than individually. That's because that organization has put together those items as a solution and it's something that the consumer goes, oh, you've done the thinking for me uh, and I trust your brand, therefore it, it makes sense for me to be enticed to purchase. But there are other things that could be added onto that that other brands may offer that you may not. So you may be part of a bigger solution to the consumer's need 
that may involve you and one or more other brands because they you know, that, that may just be the case think about um today's technology like like my wife has an apple iphone but she's got a, a samsung watch and that's just because of a legacy issue but but she's yeah. consi- she expects that still to work and the experience to be the same which it is but that's the solution right so she's using wearable tech that she bought from a previous phone and still wants to work with a new phone she doesn't care both those brands are within her trust sphere so she expects them to just work yeah uh, and I think that's true today that, that consumers want frictionless experiences would be an Uber or Lyft car or other rideshare service. If you think about the checkout process, it's the most simple. You literally step out the car, the app gets told you've left the car by the driver and that's it. You don't even have to press a button, do anything. You just literally walk out the car. That's the most frictionless environment. And I won't get into, into the automotive side of things. There's lots of interesting stuff there as well that is going on. But that's how we should be aiming towards thinking about our shoppers and consumers. If we can create the most frictionless experience for them, do the thinking, be genuine, be trustful, you'll find that that, that connection is going to be the new way of understanding loyalty. Yeah. Take a look at what Harry's and Dollar Shave Club did with Razor. They really address the friction that you encounter when you go into the store, that it's behind a locked cabinet, that you have to go get somebody. Off, they're still pretty confusing as far as how to buy those things at a store versus what you can do online with direct-to-consumer. Direct-to-consumer doesn't work with every category, but boy, that was one that was uh, ripe for disruption. And if you look at what they're doing, they're providing education. They're providing education around what the product is and why. Nothing, I would argue, nothing drastically terribly new, or just a restatement of what the product is and helping make clear choices. They've done the thinking for you. So just, here we are, buy it. Seen this before, right? Um, there's certain categories I've, I've worked with where it's clear there's saturation. Everyone wants to be remaining on the shelf, don't want to take the products off. But we've done work where we've seen you remove the choices for the shopper and the consumer and sales will go up, not all the time for every single category, but certain categories where clearly there's saturation, clearly there's an overwhelming choice. Consumers enjoy choice, but they don't want too much choice. If you have a lot of choices, then when you do make a choice, you have second thoughts about it. My, uh, my daughter has a friend. She's from the United States, but she grew up in Papua New Guinea. And I was just asking her, you know, what does she miss from Papua New Guinea? And she said, ice cream. And I, was, I said, okay. She, I go, do you have a particular favorite flavor or what, what's going on? Is Papua New Guinea known for their ice cream? Because I'd never heard that. And she said, no. There were three flavors, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. I said, yeah. She goes, well, it was really special when we got the ice cream. It was just, what, what flavor would we get? And she said, here, she felt that assortment of ice cream kind of ruined it for her here. There was just too much and it wasn't as special. And I just thought that was really interesting that she thought that just the more choice took all the fun out of it. Whereas... I'll give a stupid example maybe, but I'll give you an example that happened to me literally last night. So last night I met up with some friends who happened to be fairly salubrious in the industry, in the music industry. And we were talking about iPods and one of them said, hey, I'm just about to upgrade my iPod to handle about 50,000 songs. And I said why? Why would you do that? He said, well, I've got every single song that I want available to me. I said, but what are the chances that you'll actually make a, you'll listen to each one of those songs at least once? I said, actually, what I've done, I bought off eBay, I bought a a one gig iPod. But the reason I bought it as one gig was because it made me think about what music I want to listen to and really focus myself in on the the stuff that would make a difference to me. And I think that's the thing is just like you were saying with the, the, the paradox of choice, limitations can create, create more opportunity than having too much options. So 
when I consult with brands, I do ask the question, you know, how are you considering your position in terms of what you offer? Are you trying to blanket cover everything or are you doing something really well? Because often those, who, those organizations doing something really well, this really more focused approach, tend to have a, a much more laser focus on the consumer they're going after, providing the right messaging, not confusing uh, the messaging, clear education, clear choices, and it, it's, it's a win-win for them, just for sales, but also operationally as well. Where those wearables come in, right? now, again, your, 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 your companion on your hero's journey, those wearables can be acting in a, a number of ways. Um, they could be monitoring, alerting, engaging, protecting you. There's different ways they can do that, and whether it be the food you ingest or the places you go to or the time of day. They can be aware and help you navigate through the experiences you're having. Uh, and that's, I think, where the power comes. I think we're going to start to see brands, to your point, starting to build alliances with other companies, almost creating a like a support system for somebody. For example, if uh, insurance companies now are getting into these wearables, can where else could insurance companies start? Could they partner with maybe food companies or could they partner with sleep aids or could they partner with different maybe meditation apps? You know, the whole idea of these networks, if you're on this journey, this is what your trusted advisors are recommending. If you're a brand, you could be on the outside looking in on one of those journeys. You're just not going to be part of the decision criteria as a recommended brand to help somebody. And, and that's the challenge is that I think we're getting into that kind of what to do with the information because everyone wants it, but no one wants to give it up, right? That, that's the challenge is how do you broker that data? That's what I was talking about earlier is not only do you have to have the trust of the person giving up the data, but then the trust that if you are in a partnership, that data is used in a fair and equitable way that doesn't damage the relationship between you and your partner in crime or you and your consumer. Yeah, you're right. You have to really trust where this information is going. How are retailers handling all this? What's going on? I make sure that everyone knows that this is uh, my opinions, not that of my sure. employer. Yeah, yep. you know, so I want to first focus on Amazon because I think that's really important and worth talking about. And, you know, there's been some news recently with Amazon and Google. They, they have these in-home devices, the Alexa devices that um, can take instructions and listen to you and have had the ability to, apparently had the ability to um, feed that, those, those audio commands and so forth could be heard at the headquarters of those organizations. And there were some issues around privacy. Putting those aside, because we have in our household, we have several Alexa devices, in fact, many. In my opinion, Amazon has been extremely clever at playing the long-term game. The last Prime Day, I bought a Fire tablet for $45. Ridiculous. I mean, like, that, that price is, how are they making money? They're not making money. They're playing a game of intercepting your life. We have Amazon devices, Alexa devices, throughout our household. My children use it for weather, time, telling a bedtime story, uh, all sorts of different things. We use it for playing music, weather, that kind of stuff. There's a bunch of things we have as well, wake alarms, that kind of stuff. So we aren't using it yet for shopping. I could see how we could, potentially, if Amazon continues down the path it's going. Because right now, it, you know, the, the Alexa device is very useful for many things, but it's not quite smart enough for our way of shopping. We use Instacart. Jeff Bezos' idea is to be in everyone's home, be ubiquitous in your home. I've got four Dot or Echo devices. I've got four tablets in the household. That's eight devices for, for Alexa already. 
Wow. Right. And, and it wasn't expensive to buy any of those. He's truly becoming someone who's like seeing the long-term game. In my opinion, um, many organizations are becoming too short-term focused. We need to deliver next quarter's results. That's not how you're going to win this game. Jeff Bezos is playing the long-term game. He's not making as much money as he could maybe in certain circumstances, although he made what a 20% increase in revenue this last quarter. Yeah. And still the analysts are not happy about it. This guy knows what he's doing. He's, he's definitely going to take the whole industry to task. He's going to challenge everything, including store brands. With the event of the Amazon brick-and-mortar store, I think Amazon's going to have its own private label store brand, which will be uh, you know, a very um, marketable set of products for a certain set of people that they're going after. Whole Foods fulfills the more affluent consumer. The Amazon store will start to build on the other aspects or other segments of consumers that they haven't yet really gone after. That's a real threat, I think, for many retailers. If you also look at the retail landscape in terms of e-commerce, uh, you've got Walmart, Amazon, and Kroger who are really investing, and Target as well, who are really investing in e-commerce solutions. Then you go to Instacart and you look at the retailers on that list. There's quite a few, including Costco. I feel like it's, it's servicing a need. They, they recognize there's a need for click and collect or click and deliver. They're not investing or don't want to invest or haven't been able to invest in their own like services like Walmart or Amazon or Kroger or Target. And so they think that this is, you know, this is the interim solution while they're still figuring out that strategy. Now, my own personal experience, we originally started using Instacart with the retailer who was closest to us here in Huntington Beach. We were using that for click and deliver, very convenient. What I found the pattern to be with our purchasing was that we bought smaller baskets per, per trip or baskets overall. So we actually spent more because we were meeting a need state for what was going on in the next three days. So that was kind of interesting. But yeah. then um, my wife discovered there was a product in another store, another um, banner that she wanted instead. So all she did was just you know, change the retailer, but kept the same experience. For her, it's fantastic. Minimum friction for her. But that retailer, the other retailer, has now lost all our business because uh, of that situation. Yeah. So you, just so you stayed on Instacart, but you switched the retailer. Your experience was the same or very easy, but but you totally changed the, the store you were buying from. Right, the yeah. retailer was using Instacart as the experience. Yeah, and that's 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 good for Instacart because they've still got the customer. That's good for us. We've still got what we want, but for the retailer, they've made no connection. If you, I'm not going to poo-poo user interfaces, but I've used certain applications around e-commerce and some of them are really good and some of them need a lot more work because I am very critical of the experience I have. If I have more friction full experience, I'm more likely to go, nope, done. I'll move somewhere else where I can get one day some delivery, for example. I mean, I'm very lucky that some, in fact, some cases I've actually had same day delivery from those services. It keeps you sticky because you know and trust that service is going to be fulfilled in the way you want to be. It's convenient. And so you might forego, I might have to spend an extra dollar, but guess what? I know what I'm getting. I'm getting a, a service I know the trust. I don't have to wait around. I don't have to have some sort of like gateway that I have to walk through. It's just I'm meeting, or the, rather the experience is meeting my need state, and I'm relying on that service to be as frictionless as possible. Yeah. Have you, as a consumer, just totally not 
do you go to stores still? I mean, I know you probably go to stores just because you work in the industry and you, yeah, you have to see what's going on. But has your fa- the bulk of your buying is done online and delivered to your house? Is that how? Is that what's happening? It's it's still a mixture. It depends on circumstance. We we our particular household is pretty busy. We're all over the shop all the time. I'm often traveling and. I, my wife's dealing with uh, or shuttling my son back and forth to auditions. Yeah. So it does depend on what's happening for the week. I would say that we, tr- we typically, nine times out of ten, we use Instacart as our main shop. Yeah. But we do have and, and still enjoy certain trips to the store for certain things, especially fresh produce. That's a big one. That's particularly keen. And also, because we're not going to the store so often, actually, some of those store visits can be seen as a bit more fun. Whereas before it was like, you know, it might go three or four times a week. It kind of gets tired and old. Now it's a bit more of a novelty. And so the experience is changing for us as we go to the stores. We, we are having different levels of expectation, which is kind of interesting if you think about that. And that could lead to different feelings and emotions and, and make consumers want to experiment or find new things and discover things that maybe they couldn't, you know, that, that they can actually hold something in their hand and look at it and examine it. And maybe they remember it for next time to order online, but you're in the store and you're actually experiencing that thing. That, that's an interesting thing as we're talking through this just now. It's occurred to me that that could be an interesting way of looking at it. That's why I think stores have an opportunity still to engage with their shoppers around experience. So talking about like the Uber Eats, there's still a, a market space, I believe, for prepared meals and having those quality, good for you, better for you type meals in forms that can be consumed easily. Yes, we'd all like to... I'm speaking again personally. We'd all like to be there being a chef, chopping up our vegetables, but actually sometimes it's just like, I just want to put stuff together very quickly and feel like I've been part of the cooking process. So I feel good about myself. And then voila, here's my cogovan or something that's been created in part by me, but mostly that meal delivery service or that meal preparation service. So there's lots of opportunities still for retailers to engage with their shoppers. They've started with things like, these store experiences, the coffee shops, the coffee bars. You know, in the local Whole Foods, to me, they have a pizza bar, actual alcohol bar as well, and you can actually buy a beer and walk around the store with a beer if you want to. And when I tell people that, they're like, oh, that sounds really cool. I'm like, okay. I mean, if that's what it takes to, for you to enjoy and relax into the shopping experience, but it is, it's all part of that experience. And then when you go into Whole Foods, you see these signs around, hey, if you're a Prime member, you get extra deals. So, you're kind of creating this, this special club. You're enticing people to cross over to the Prime world. I think yeah. there's about 43% of U.S. citizens today have Prime, and that's only going to increase. Uh, that's a lot of people. And so it's not really an exclusive club, but it, it sure feels like it when you go to Whole Foods. Deliveries, too. I, when yeah. I'm online and it says, oh, you know, with Prime, boom. You- I'm not sure if you realize this quick side story about Amazon. You mentioned the Fire Phone. And everyone says, you know, that that failed as a product. Yes, it failed as a product, but actually it's the outcome of that product and the observation of how it was used ended up creating the Echo devices. So actually it wasn't a failure. It was just a a level before the actual success came out. Um, Yeah, I've read several articles where internally that is not perceived as a failure and billions of dollars and it was an unsuccessful product. But at Amazon, it's not they don't want people to be risk averse internally there. And it's not something that is perceived as a failure because all the things they learn from it. Bezos, when they they asked him what his management style is, 
it was very interesting. I didn't understand what he was talking about at first, but he says, well, I really live in the future. So then he had to explain it. But I have people that manage the day-to-day. I'm looking out to it, right? He's looking out five years from now. And he's yep. saying, I'm living five years out. And he goes, if I have to get involved in a today issue with one of my businesses, there's going to be a problem. You know, they're really putting whole long, you know, companies that have been out there for decades and, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much putting them out of business. And, uh, from, and those companies, I think, never really pivoted to, to where they could have been because they're looking at quarter by quarter. You know, it's a, it's a huge lesson there, but it's, it's not easy for some of these companies to do that. There is that. There's a tremendous focus on the day-to-day. It's not just, it's not just um, quarter by quarter stuff. It's also, I mean, like, there's a classic example of Smith Corona. Yeah, they made typewriters and they sold to the government and had this, like, corner on the market of, of typewriters. were you know, looking to expand and, and stay on top of their game. And they partnered with this small company called Acer and created these laptops. But really didn't feel it was where they wanted to be. So they kind of stopped, you know, stopped the partnership. Fast forward to today and look at Acer, look at Smith Corona, right? That's, yeah. that's where they just weren't prepared to, they felt they had more opportunity. I think it was the, the story was they had the opportunity to reduce operational costs by moving their production to Mexico. They took that path because it technically, it sounded the best approach. It was reducing operational costs, but it didn't accommodate for what was happening in the marketplace and where the, where the industry was going. So it's, yeah. it's really, it's really, um, Yep. Uh, all that kind of stuff. There's a, a bunch of examples of these large organizations who have, I guess the message is always be hungry, always be prepared to try. I mean, you want to test the water and you may fail, but for that instance, but by all means, you know, learn from it and grow from it. And, and we've seen examples where that happens time and time again. And Amazon's a great example uh, of, of such a thing. And um, in my opinion, Jeff Bezos is going after everything. I mean, he's got my TV, he's got my kitchen with the Alexa dot or Alexa. He's got my laptop or my um, tablet. He's going after everything he can. So he's everywhere. And, and that's the whole point is it's to creep into your life so that when it's taken away to your point, you notice. That's my opinion. What are the, what's the, some of the things that you're seeing out there from a future standpoint that you're really excited about? It's a really good question. From a, I always say that the best time to make changes is when there's a period of challenge, when things are not going to plan. Now is the time to make the change because people are more aware, people are more open to making changes because they realize, you know, things aren't going great, aren't going as well as they used to. We need to make some changes. What are they? When things are good, tends to be just human nature, tends to be a little bit more kind of laid back and things are running good. Why, why change anything? This industry, I think, is long overdue a refresh in the way that we think about how everything is more linked closely together than maybe we thought in the first place. How from the moment a consumer or shopper wakes up to the moment they go to bed, there are so many more touch points that we probably never even thought about or considered that we could make connections with. And those connections are not just about making a sale, they're about making a connection for the experience and connecting the consumer with why you exist, the value proposition you offer. Uh, and how you add value to their life. I think it's it's a good and bad thing. It's it's good that it's going to happen. It's gonna it's bad that it's going to disrupt and upset some folks. A line I read recently from a guy called Simon Sinek. Oh yeah. Who said, People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Yeah. They buy and I why. think that is yeah. absolutely spot on the nose. It's going to challenge many folks across these different silos in, within organisations to work together with one common goal of creating experience for their shopper. That means that these concepts of revenue management typically have been focused in a small set of groups of folks. Really, it's, it's much more 
pan-organization role, you can't have an effective revenue management group without knowing about marketing or innovation or you know, other groups that typically aren't mentioned in revenue management. They feed into and, feed, and you feed into them how things can go. And there's a, a much closer linked approach towards that. It's going to be a challenge, but it's going to be a healthy challenge. At the same time, we're seeing a lot more types of data available, not just straight POS, but other data available. And that can include survey type data, but also with um, stores implementing other digital monitoring services, like the Amazon Go has all that data, that's going to be really interesting to see how that's leveraged and used. Mix that with the technology of um, machine learning, AI. I'm a bit cautious about mentioning that because it's, they're, they're buzzwords. Just like big, big data was a buzzword. Years ago, in another organization I was working for, a client said to me, have you done big data yet? Or can, can you solve this product problem with big data? And I said, well, the first question I have to ask you is, have you solved, it with, have you solved your uh, medium data problem yet? <laughs> manage your medium data. Big data is going to be 10 times worse. So let's just approach it pragmatically. So I think AI and machine learning, there's lots of little solutions out there that exist at various scales from the small up to the enterprise. There's going to be an application of that, but we have to think about don't leave with technology, leave with a solution, leave with a problem statement and see how technology fits in with it. Don't jump to the technology being the panacea, it won't be. But I find that whole area of using these technology evolutions, accelerating the way we can consume different types of data and create different understandings, not just about what trends are growing or emerging with our consumers and shoppers, but what trends should be, what's next, what's to come, based off anything. It could be traffic data, weather data, um, shopping. It's all valuable information, and it all creates a better way to experience. The, the challenge always will come is that all this data has to live somewhere and is exposed to some, and can be potentially accessed if not secured properly. So there's a massive mastery around data security that has to be there to support it. We have seen too many instances of data hacks, Target, Home Depot. These are large organizations with large IT departments, yet they've still seen these data hacks come in. There's a big need for this industry to secure and prove it's secure and provide that trust. Because without that, no one's giving up any information at all. What I'm excited about, the innovation the stories of like Ben and Jerry's, which is now owned by Unilever, but it really was two people in Vermont that started Ben and Jerry's, or the Paul Newman salad dressing. Those were those were very rare instances out there. There was a certain amount of luck that had to happen with that, a certain amount of private funding. But now it seems like a lot of the barriers to entry on this are lower. You can maybe move quicker. Just look at uh, Soylent, right? As an example of a, they've been around for a few years now, being funded by the consumer. They've been through like several iterations. I think they're on like a version 2.3 or something now. Don't quote me on that. But basically, they've gone through this kind of idea of like, it's almost like a software versioning on their, on their product, which is a meal replacement, or basically it's a meal in a, in a convenient deliverable solution. Some people are really kind of drawn to that because it's, a, it's almost a, not a cult, but it's a, something that's a club that you can be in and, and talk about how different versions of, Soylent impact your life and how you're using that product and of trying to connect the consumer with the use and the intent and the values and the benefits and they keep constant communication up and it's just a really good example of a smaller group of folks who got together cool but 
strange name if you saw them for movie. Yeah, uh, it is strange. And, and you know, it's still going, as far as I know, well today and still has a, a loyal following. Uh, and to your point, they can iterate and they're versioning their iterations. Uh, a green beans in a can version two. They've done a great job of, of making that something. Yeah, that's a great example. That also gets back, even though they do have some variety, it's hitting a core aspect of friction where it's like, okay, I'm hungry. I don't want to be hungry and I don't want to give it a lot of thought. And so it's like, so the whole idea is, hey, if I'm hungry, if I'm at my desk and I don't want to be hungry, I'm just going to have this and a tremendous amount of trust with that product. People have done the research. It's, it's nutritionally sound and that's good for me. It's going to taste okay and it's going to meet all my nutritional requirements and I'm, yep. not, and I'm not going to be hungry afterwards. And it, so it's, it's a very different approach, but a great example of something that, you know, that is not something a large consumer packaged goods company would have come up with. <laughs> you know, that's, it's just the name, the idea, just everything about that just was like, really? I haven't tried it, but I, I would like to try it. That has a market out there for sure. Totally. Totally does. Yep. Hey, Paul, thank you for so much for taking the time. I look forward to your LinkedIn's. Uh, I know you're doing other podcasts. And I know you're busy. I really appreciate you taking the time. So if I'm looking for Paul Morgan out on the, is LinkedIn the, the place people can see your posts or is there a way kind of get a view of what you're seeing out there? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a prolific poster on LinkedIn and uh, my username is Paul Morgan. So you can just go to LinkedIn slash in slash Paul Morgan, one word. You'll find me there. I post multiple times a day usually um, during the working week and sometimes during the weekend. Yeah, you're great. And uh, every, you know, there are some people out there that I've had to cut off because they're just blah. Yours are always very insightful. I feel like you're almost like a little news service for me because you're seeing things out there. I'm like, I don't know where you saw this, but this is amazing. So it's, it's great you're doing that. I'm, I'm an ex-developer, wrote Java applications. And when I was learning that, very much honed into me that you know, everything's a pattern. Everything follows a pattern eventually. You, can, you just have to work out what the pattern is and then you'll know. And so I am looking for patterns. And it may be patterns that are slow to emerge, but if they resonate enough with me, I remember seeing this article two months ago, and here's another one. This builds on the last article. Okay, this makes sense. Now look into a bit more, and if it's worth investigating, continue, right? Uh, or otherwise, some things, good to know. Is it going to move the needle forward? Is it going to make a, a change to the industry? That's kind of my approach, um, and I think it works pretty well. It helps me think a lot about how the industry is going, and some of it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You kind of have to not just take what's going on around you, but also kind of make some educated stabs at what's going to happen next and, and test them out. So what, I'm, what, you know, what I do is I, I do exactly that. I'm not only just reading these articles and thinking about it, but I'm also using things like LinkedIn and pressure test my ideas and I openly welcome challenges or comments and participation in, that, in, that, in those threads. It's not just self-promotion or entice folks to use the services of my employer. It's to try and get collaboration. There's some, some good folks out there also I recommend checking out as well so, um, who really are caring about what's happening in, in the industry. But we're all of the same opinion. I've spoken to them before and, and we're all the same opinion that we just want to share and collaborate and communicate with our folks because we see these things happening out there and we really want to kind of be part of that change and help influence that change in the right way because there's many ways this could go. And some of that is going to be challenging. Some of it's going to be exciting. But we just need to know what we're dealing with and how we can help the industry move forward best. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your opinions and knowledge today. I really appreciate it. You know, if this podcast is around a year from now, we'd lo I'd love to have you back. Fantastic. Thanks, Paul.
Cheers, Mike. Thanks. Thanks.